Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. We're back. Inside the Hive, I'm Joe Hagan. I'm here with Emily Jane Fox. I'm I'm seeing her through a a filter of red. Ugh! I wish you were seeing me through a filter right now. I could use a filter, but you are seeing me through what smells like if we had smell a vision. You we would have smell a vision. Smell the smoke in our living room. It's crazy. As someone who's new to California and um, new to our planet on fire. We live in Los Angeles, or I'm living in Los Angeles for the duration of the pandemic, and I woke up very early this morning to work New York hours, and it was still dark out, and all I can see was the moon, which is bright red. And there aren't even fires in the local vicinity, but I opened the slider to let my puppy out, who's now running around here. You can probably hear her tag jingling in the background. And my entire house smells like fire now. And... It is a reminder of the fact that our political system is broken. It is raging for all of us and that the election is looming and the consequences of it really matter. I mean, not just in terms of what's happening with the pandemic, which is really the whole ball of wax, not just in terms of what's happening with the economy or civil rights, but we can't breathe the air that we need to breathe if we keep going down this road. We can't leave our homes and feel like they're going to stay there because there's going to be a wildfire raging through. It just, it's so scary and it's so real and it's going to hit so many people in this country in an elemental level in so many different ways. And that just drives home the importance of how, uh, of, of this election that is coming closer and sooner than all of us want to believe. And that's how I, I leave us as we start this conversation which feels dark and heavy, but I think we can take it to a lighter place. Joe, you're not on fire, literally, but there's a lot to be fiery about this week as we head back to school the, the first week after Labor Day an inch closer to a decision in November. Well, a blood-red moon and skies that look like we're in a outtake from Mad Max Fury Road mm. seems completely appropriate as every single kind of news break that you can imagine exploded this week all at once. Obviously, these things are happening partially in a timed way. It's post-Labor Day. Everybody's attention is back, and boom, it all lands. The Bob Woodward book. We've got a whistleblower telling us that uh, that the Homeland Security is, um, you know, interfering with, uh, you know, the, the information we're getting about Russian interference and white supremacists. Uh, we've learned, out fr- learned from the, uh, the NIH director that uh, this ve- promised vaccine, uh, hey, put the brakes on that, not necessarily going to happen. You know, 
frankly, a lot of Donald Trump's campaign, uh, the, pre- the sort of premises of it are all being undercut and kneecapped this week. And uh, the biggest one, of course, comes in the form of a book, the latest book, uh, Rage. Rage, am I correct? Bob Woodward's Rage. Rage. They're all single uh, word, maybe two syllable, one syllable titles for all these books. Who would have thought in the era of Donald Trump, four years into his presidency, that we would be in the golden age of reading books? That is not what I would have had on my bingo card for, for where we would be after the first term, maybe the only term, of President Donald Trump's presidency, that we would just be talking about book after book after book. But here we are. People are yeah, reading. All about, all about the, the biggest non-reader it's really, who's ever been in it's the White House. It's a stunning <laughs> turn. I love it. And what I think is so interesting is in the last, like really in the last half of summer, we've had four stunning books about the president. We had Mary Trump, his own niece. We had Stephanie Winston Walkoff, who is Melania Trump's close friend and advisor. You have Michael Cohen, who is President Trump's former fixer, lawyer, longtime loyalist, who wrote a book called Disloyal. And now we have Bob Woodward's second book, for which the president granted him 18 interviews after his first book, which basically called him a completely unstable, unfit president, and yet he decided to sit down with him 18 times to, I guess, try and prove him wrong? I don't know. And it is remarkable how much disqualifying information is in all of these books, and yet I worry that none of them will actually disqualify him. What do you think? Well... I I was looking at uh, the latest article by John P- P- uh, Joe Pompeo, uh, our reporter at the Hive. He he quotes Stuart Stevens, who I interviewed last week, um, who you know basically says this is not helping attract new voters. If you think of it in terms of accumulating votes, it may not dissuade the cultists from the Trump world. You know. But the more people see of this, the more exhausted they're going to get. And, you know, it's not like these things are helping him. And one of the things that Stuart Stevens pointed out that was really interesting is that the one thing both campaigns, Joe Biden's and Donald Trump's, share is they they all have a, a, an amount of time, right? They have an amount of time and attention. And if Trump is on his heels dealing with one explosive piece of information from a book after another— He's not advancing anything, right? So on on one level, it's not like it's going to change the minds of certain people whose minds are made up, but it is definitely going to, uh, you know, um, send Trump, uh, you know, basically chew up Trump's time to make any kind of case that he wants to make. Not that he's ever tried to make much of a case, but uh, I do think that... Um, you know the uh, that's a good point about time. You know, I think it's a great point. I, you know, the thing that we talked about last week was that that the president seemed to be making some headway in his messaging around law and order, 
and about mm-hmm. these protests and about violence in our suburbs and our cities and our streets. That's right. And that's, that message actually works for him. And that could potentially win over voters who weren't going to vote for him or weren't energized to vote in the polls. But the issue of violence seems to be resonating with a large portion of this country. And the fact that the president was sort of making inroads and on the offense for the first time in this entire campaign, and that gets stopped in its tracks by first the the comments he made about the military, which I want to talk about with you. And then Mm -hmm. these interviews with Bob Woodward, what's so startling to me about this and what I think could make this the most effective of the range of books is that you have audio. And this president knows better than any president the power of using your own voice and the power of television. And there's only so much you can do on cable news when you have other people talking about what someone else said. Even if it's the author who's giving a firsthand account of an interview, that's powerful and that's important. That is not nearly as powerful as someone in their own words, and there's proof of it. And so much of what the president has done and and his minions have done over the last few years when there have been so many accounts, both in books and in newspapers and in magazines like ours, about the crazy things the president has said is the, the first line of defense is fake news. This didn't happen. Someone's making this right. up out of whole cloth. You can't do that when you have an audio tape of someone who granted you an interview. There's nothing he can do to get around these comments that he's made. They are time-stamped. They are in his own words, with his own voice. I know that last October we heard a tape, or not last October, the last election cycle of October. My God, time really is a flat circle. (laughs) But we heard the the president in his own words talking about uh, grabbing women by their genitals because he was a celebrity and his ability to get away with that. And that didn't make a difference in the election because I think people are deeply sexist. But I I think that there was something so powerful and so election shifting in terms of the conversation when you heard him in his own words. That tape really dominated the discourse for the remainder of the 2016 election. And I think that these tapes will have staying power. If if the Biden campaign is smart, they will play these tapes ad nauseum. And I think that the debate mm-hmm. moderators, as they get closer to nailing down what they are planning to ask these candidates, they should play these tapes. Play yeah. the tapes. Well, and, and to your point, it's the tapes and it's what the tapes are about, which is these are the two narratives that are at battle. Law and order. I want to shift your Trump wants to you know shift your attention to that coronavirus, utter failure, you know mass death. Right, this is what Trump is trying to avoid. And so, again, like this week and this revelation and these tapes, um, make it very difficult for Trump to change the subject, especially as we're going back to school. Right, we're um, I'm just about to put my kids into their, you know, virtual school. Um, but there's some possibility they'll be going back in person. And there's a college near me, Bard College, which is going back right now. Lots of nerves there as all these students um, pour into my area. And so you you take think about what's going on in front of people in their daily lives. It's this coronavirus thing that they're dealing with. And suddenly here's audio tape that Bob Woodward is delivering to you that shows 
definitively. He knew it was bad, and he said, liberate Michigan in his tweets, right? He said, go out. He literally, basically, you know, not li- not basically, he, he directly and literally told people it was okay to go out and circulate while this deadly stuff, quote unquote, was out there. That's, I mean, in a normal world, which we no longer live in, he would be impeached, he would have to resign, he'd be over. But the fact that he's not, okay, we're in a weird world in which gravity no longer, uh, you know, is operable. But the one thing that is operable is time and attention, right? The Trump administration and Trump's gift, if you want to call it that, has been all about grabbing attention and keeping it on him. And right now, the time attention sort of axis is now perfectly negative on him. I... Yeah, you're you're a thousand percent right. What I think is pretty startling to me, and and I haven't really heard an operative make this point yet, but I'm sure they'll get there, is that so much of the president's messaging over the last five years has been the media elite and the rich people in this country are are leaving you behind and making fun of you and think they're better than you and they're making shit up and it's fake news and whatever. And... It's a crazy premise because Trump is, if not a billionaire, a a very high millionaire, and he is in those back rooms, and he's part of the media establishment, whatever it is, the whole thing of why it's so ridiculous. But what this is, is this is proof that Trump is having different conversations with, with the media elite and with the powerful and the rich mm-hmm. behind your back, average Americans. He's, That's such a good point. He's treating that, you like you don't deserve to have the the conversations because you can't handle it. We're smarter than you, and so we can talk about the actual facts behind your backs. But if I tell you the truth, you're going to panic and behave irrationally because you're poor and you're stupid. And you can't handle the truth. But we can handle this in this back room, men among amongst men having these kinds of high-level conversations that you can't handle. And so I, I think that if people try and paint the president as part of the media elite who looks down on the people he's trying to use in order to get his own power and keep his own power. That's a really powerful message. And that's what I heard when he's having this conversation with Bob Woodward, who is an incredible journalist, but like the innard of the inner, right? Yes, right. He's, he's, he is exactly who he who the president rallies against all the time. And he is... A right. creature of the swamp because he reports on it. And so to be having these these backroom conversations with who he would paint as a swamp creature and hiding it from his core base of supporters and the rest of the American public, what's swampier than that? Right. Well, the vanity of Trump to want to have this guy listening to him, you know, freeform in his office is a reveal mm. in itself, right? Um so let's talk for a minute about Michael Cohen. Mm. Trump's Wait, can I can lawyer. I say one thing about this book? And then I have so much to say about Michael Cohen. Please, I, I did a little bit of reporting. So I talked to someone just before I talked to you, who is very in the Trump world and uh, does not currently work for the campaign, but has but has and is in this circle. And he said that the book is devastating, that the tapes are devastating, and that the 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 whole crew is just thanking God that it came out now and not in October. 
And I thought that was really interesting, a really interesting mm. reaction, um, especially because so many people have been criticizing Bob Woodward over the last 16 hours that he held on to it for as long as he did. Uh, right. There is still so much time between today and and the election, but I think if people keep these alive, uh, these tapes alive, they will still be around in October. That's the thing about tapes. They don't go anywhere. And I know that our news cycle moves so quickly and 50,000 things that are incendiary and scary will happen between today and October. But these don't go anywhere right. if we don't let them. This is Inside the Hive. Three, two, one. Political Breakdown is a daily politics podcast from KQED in San Francisco that goes deep into the issues you care about. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Look, 2024 is going to get weird. Who decides when there's been an insurrection or not? We're still in the innovation phase of AI. And that is where you see that they're not actually being equitable and trying to build a utopia where we can all use drugs happily together. (laughs) But whatever happens this election year, the KQED politics team is in this with you. Political Breakdown. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's talk about Michael Cohen taking things that aren't going anywhere. (sighs) <sighs> so the other book that came out this week belongs yes. to the president's longtime fixer who now famously told me three years ago that he would take a bullet for the president and um he sort of did right he he went to prison he's still serving time on home confinement for paying off a woman in the run-up to an election whom he has said under oath uh, he paid at the direction of President Donald Trump. Uh, it is, it's, the book is really interesting. It's quite long. It's very extensive. It details their relationship from the beginning all throughout um, their time at the Trump Organization and the campaign and then through um, the criminal investigation and then going to prison and what is so revealing about it to me is obviously the racism that Cohen has told me about for years and testified to under oath and now put in his book um I just keep thinking about all of these books particularly Mary Trump's book Stephanie Winston Wilkoff's book about Melania and Michael Cohen's book they are just these are people who are so close to the Trump family and the Trump business. And the, and to have so many people close to you write tell-all books that require, all require used to recording conversations with members of the Trump family, what must you have to do to people to feel like they have to record conversations amongst friends in order to <laughs> cover yeah. their their own asses? To have that happen three times in the span of essentially six weeks says so much more to me than any specific anecdote in any of the book. That that is the climate they have created around them is so revealing about the kind of people they are. Just let me ask you, have you ever in your personal life felt the need to tape one of your closest friends or your boss because you felt like at some point down the road that person could yeah. turn on you or you would end up- As an insurance policy? Yes, or yeah. you would end up in the middle of a criminal investigation because of your association with them. Have you ever felt that impulse in your personal life? Well, I haven't been surrounded um, you know, by people who are in a sort of semi-criminal 
um, operation, so I can't say I have. I mean, there's a book, one of the books in the many Trump books we're talking about, Team of Vipers, My 500 Extraordinary Days in the Trump White House by Cliff Sims. Mm. I mean, that says exactly what you're saying. And, and, um, and I think the president believed that book was good for him. That's one he had a positive reaction to. <laughs> well, you know, the that one of the things I want to ask you about Michael Wolf. Michael I mean, sorry, Cohen. Michael Cohen. Yeah, all the Michaels. So many Michaels. Uh, Michael Wolf. That's another subject. Oh. Oh, that was that was two years ago, but set, sort of set the agenda. And, and let me, as an aside, before we get back into Michael Cohen, here's Trump giving interviews to Bob Woodward after he's already been like, you know, burned alive by Michael Wolf in the Fire and Fury book two years ago. He just can't, uh, you know, get enough, I guess. There's I mean, no self-control. The, f- the press secretary yesterday says, well, you know, why did he give these interviews to Woodward, they asked her. And she said, oh, because he said he's so transparent, right? You know, now that's ridiculous. But on some level, there is a level on which it's true. That there is no psychological depth to Trump. I mean, it's not like the analysis is too deep. You know, you look at narcissistic personality disorder and it explains 99% of what you're seeing. Um, But anyway, Michael Cohen is uh, himself a flawed messenger, right? He... We know he knows the president maybe better than anybody because of how close he's been. And yet the double-edged sword here is he's probably somewhat like Trump in some ways, right? Or has an affinity for somebody like Trump. You know, as journalists, we know that we're always having to deal, you know, you occasionally deal with rogues, right? You, you, you have to get the truth. You have to find out what happened. You have to judge uh, the veracity uh, of what you're getting and by partly by judging the character of the people who are giving it to you and asking yourself, were they in the room where it happened? To quote another book. Um, so he says, uh, you know, he's now he's calling Trump a cheat, a liar, a fraud, a bully, a racist, a predator, a con man. And he said CNN to said CNN uh, this week, he wants to be an autocrat. He wants to be the president of this country for life. So, uh, Wow. Tell me, like, how you judge the veracity of Michael Cohen as somebody who has known him and really has some insight into him. Well, I mean, I'll just lay out to you how I know him and how much time I've spent with him over the last uh, five years. I mean, I really started interviewing him three and a half years ago for the book I was writing because I, too, have written a Trump book. And the second I met him, I had lunch with him out in the Hamptons at a mutual friend's house. And he gave me the entire framing for my book because he knows the Trump family so well. And he explained the Trump family as these, or the Trump children as these sort of mini Voltrons who each have one real distinct personality of their father. And it was such an apt way of describing them that I was like, okay, this guy really knows what he's talking about. And I asked to interview him and that's when I sat down with him for an interview and he told me that he would take a bullet for the president. It was right before he testified to Congress and and lied to Congress the first time. And I started spending a significant amount of time with him because I was writing about him and he was a helpful source on understanding the Trump family and dynamics in the White House. And, you know, Michael is the first to admit, particularly in this book, that he was sort of like, well, he felt like he was in a cult, right? 
and he was blinded to the things that the president was doing and he was blinded by his own greed and the money he was making the access to power that he had and I saw all of that and I knew all of that the way that I could get around trusting someone who had lied to Congress and didn't see the world as clearly as perhaps you and I saw it because he was sort of under his spell was that Michael taped everything and Michael saved everything. And if I wasn't 100% sure of something that he was saying, that I would go out and call someone else who was in the room or knew the situation or maybe Cohen had reported re, uh, repeated it to someone else at the time. And so you do your job as a reporter. You go with your gut too. And I think that, mm-hmm. um, you know, you probably, I know you have this too, but because we are lied to so often in our job, I have a pretty keen sense of when I'm being lied to. And right. your spidey sense goes off. Right. And you're also constantly remembering and keep checking yourself by understanding what the motives of the person are. Totally. The more you know a source, too, the more you understand their motives. And right. so the more time you're able to spend with someone and the more conversations you're able to have, first of all, they start repeating themselves. And so there's sort of comfort mm-hmm. in some repetition, right? And right. you also just sort of know where they're coming from. And so if I were to get a phone call from an imaginary source who I know hated another person at their job and they were telling me something bad about that person, I would say, okay, that person has a reason to tell me something bad about that person. What is that reason? How strong is that reason? Who else can corroborate this who maybe doesn't have that axe to grind? And so you, as a reporter, you sort of triangulate. You figure out what those what those motives That's are. Right. You figure out who else can corroborate something. And the reality is... Um, Michael could be a flawed messenger and has been a flawed messenger, but he has testified to all of these things under oath, has, has repeated them to a number of different investigative bodies. He, he's sort of out of fucks to give. (laughs) And the, the reason for him telling the truth, you can, you can debate whether or not that is to get money or attention from selling books, and I'm sure that that plays a part in it. But he also hasn't been able to, in his own words, tell his story for many years because he's been part of so many investigations, and I think that this feels cathartic to him. I think that he wants to make lemonade out of the lemons he feels he has given over the last few years, and I genuinely believe he does not want to see the president reelected because he feels like he is detrimental to this country. And I think he's speaking out now and doing whatever he can to mobilize voters because he so deeply does not want to see the president have another term in November. Right. Right. Well, to what you were saying is that uh, you, as a journalist, um, we're always trying to, the more you spend time you spend with somebody like that, you start to understand the tor- story that they're telling to themselves mm. uh, in addition to, you know, what it is the story, whether the story is true or not, you know, they are telling themselves a story. And I think of Michael Cohen now writing this book, having been to prison, having been publicly shamed. This is a guy with children, right? Um, at some point, you know, 
you have to uh, make amends. You know, you have to try to right the world uh, because, you know, you do not want to go down in history for your children as having been uh, some kind of like scumbag, you know, criminal. You're totally right? right. This is Inside the Hive. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There is five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically, I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. So tell me about your own experience with you know um, his daughter, for instance, right? Um, so I just interviewed know. his daughter this week. Um, there's, an, there's a pretty stunning story in uh, Cohen's book. And the story is he was taking his family to Bedminster to the Trump Club in New Jersey. It was a really hot summer day and they were going to play tennis and swim. And Cohen was sitting with Trump by the pool and Trump was commenting on some woman in a bathing suit and making some disgusting remarks and Trump whistles and says look at that piece of ass or something like that and Michael looks over and it is his 15 year old daughter in tennis whites and a ponytail and and the president makes a comment like I'd love a piece of ass like that something like that something disgusting and Cohen's like that's my 15 year old daughter my God. And the president says, like, something disgusting, like he would be lucky to have something like that or whatever. So then Samantha, his his daughter, who was 15 at the time, comes over and Trump asks her for a kiss on the cheek. And she is creeped out and says, whatever. And he says, like, oh, you have such a nice figure all of a sudden. You've really grown up. Be careful. In a few years, I'm going to be dating one of your friends. And the story is disgusting, truly. And Michael writes afterwards in the story, like, Samantha had been urging him to not work for Trump for a really long time because she felt like Trump was really mean to him and would cut his salary in half or not give him a bonus if he felt like Michael wasn't beholden enough to him. And I interviewed Samantha this week and... I asked her about this story and about her father's obsequiousness to Trump. And it was really interesting because she said to me, she's like, it's so funny. When I read that story, I remember it differently. She was like, all those things are probably true. But what stuck out to me was that Trump said, like, Michael, she must get her looks from her mother because she certainly didn't get them from you. And it really bothered me that he was putting my dad down to my face and degrading him like that. And he always... Horrible. He was always so 
terrible to my dad and and so dismissive of him and it's it's really interesting how people pick out see the same stories so differently and in in their memories they they have different points what I also found really interesting from talking to her was she was like yeah my dad had Stockholm syndrome and she said the one time that he lied to her was when the Stormy Daniels stuff first came out. She's like, my whole life, my dad's so been so open with me, but he was dishonest with me about the Stormy thing. And I asked her why that was or why she thought that was. And she said, I don't think he wanted to even admit to himself what the truth was. And I don't think he wanted to put out into the universe what he had done because he realized what had happened was so bad for him. And that he wasn't going to be supported or backed up. And the thing that that struck me about talking to her was, you know, people, adults make decisions in their lives. Michael Cohen made a lot of choices in his life that led him to where he was. But their families don't make those decisions and children don't make those decisions. And yes, the Cohen family benefited from their association with the Trumps and the Trump organization in, in some ways. But a, a young lady in her 20s did not make the decision to pay off a porn star or to work on a political campaign. But her life has been uh, totally impacted. And, and we don't really get to hear the stories of the people in the backgrounds of all these news stories very often. You know, you don't really get to hear from the Manafort daughters or the Bannon twins. Right. Or Cohen's kids. And it's just a fascinating perspective on stories we know everything else about, except for these tertiary characters and how, uh, what that fallout feels like for all of them. So it was a really interesting interview. I'm, I'm excited to put that out in the world. But I think it's just worth noting as we go into this next phase of life, whether that is former years of Trump or four years of the Biden family, which is a whole new cast of, of what we call characters. Uh, I, I mean, there are there are people who choose to be part of this. Jared and Ivanka Trump, Don Jr., Eric, Tiffany, they've all chosen to be part of the public discourse and some of them have chosen to work in the White House or on the campaign. And that, that makes them a little bit more fair game because they've opted to live publicly and to uh, work in an office that belongs to the people and to be on a public stage they've they've opted into that but there are a lot of people whose whose lives are impacted by their their association to people who don't opt into it and i think it's a good thing to think about in our coverage and also in our mediascape to just just enter with a little bit of thought and thoughtfulness well it everything you're saying reminded me of uh Claudia Conway, mm. uh, the daughter of Kellyanne Conway and George Conway, who have both like sort of bowed out of their respective um, kind of roles in the political s- landscape in order to deal with their daughter, who's telling them, you know, you guys are both clowns and ruining my life. And it's sort of interesting that uh, the power we're seeing in this in these particular instances of daughters right, of younger generation women kind of uh, looking at the their parents' involvement in this, you know, cretinous um, White House and having some influence, whether indirectly or directly. I mean, and it, it does make me think about Ivanka, 
right? And how it is that somebody like that can tolerate and um, advocate and continue to, um, I mean, yes, she's the daughter of this guy, but I mean, she herself is going to have to deal with when he's no longer president and the kind of, uh, and even more of the skeletons come out of the closet and there's like, you know, more the lawsuits land hard on her father and, you know, people talk about uh, wanting Trump in prison. Well, you know, there's a chance this guy is going to uh, be indicted when he's out of office. And then it won't be funny anymore. And Ivanka will not have the lever of power at her disposal. And is she going to try to, you know, she has no claim to uh, having stood up against any of this. She'll, she'll um, try because that's what she does. And she'll right. she'll try and say, you don't know what I did behind the scenes. This is the thing that bothers me most about the Trump era, truly. There are so many things to be bothered by. But the there's this trope of, the adults in the room, quote unquote. And that's why you have heard a number of people from John Kelly to General Mattis to all these people who have said, I didn't speak up and I stayed in that administration and I stayed quietly because you have no idea how bad it could have been if I wasn't there and I had to be the adult in the room and save the yeah. country from Trump. I hate to break it to you, they're all adults. They work in the White House. Every single person in that building is an adult who has chosen to be there, who has chosen to stay silent. These are not saviors. These are people who are complicit in all of this. And I understand that they felt like the their absence or their speaking out would have led to dire consequences. We are in a dire situation. They didn't save us from anything. It Could That's it have right. been worse? Perhaps. But I think that... that Sunlight is the best disinfectant. Silence is not is not the thing. That is not saving right. us from ourselves. For, for all the criticism of Bob Woodward that I don't agree with, I do think that there's something very important about the American people being able to know what is happening in that White House and make decisions for themselves. And it, it shouldn't be the decision of unelected, appointed people in the White House to decide what the American people should and should not know. These people work for us. We are paying their salary. They're our employees. And they have to report back to us what is happening so that we can make decisions. And it is so frustrating to me that these people talk about themselves like they saved this country by just being, quote unquote, adults. They're not adults, they're cowards. And it really bothers me. And that's the most horrifying thing of this era to me. And by the way, then they leave and they cash out and publish a book. Yes. And so many of them have done that. Omarosa, John Bolton, you know, even James Comey, right? Who's exactly temporarily there. You know, so uh, I, I think back to um, what uh, Steve Bannon told Michael Wolff. Uh, he was asked... Uh, by Michael Wolf, is the Trump White House or the Trumps a semi-criminal enterprise? And and Bannon said, "Drop the semi." Mm. Right. So here here was a guy that was as close as you can get. And then, and by the way, it takes one to know one. Now now that we see uh, what's happened to Steve Bannon, my God, um, what a turn. Uh, but you know, on the other hand, 
it's great to read these books. I'm glad they're out there. I'm glad we're getting a view, different points of view. Reading is good. Reading is great. Um, but I must conclude, it was even this true when I was seeing the Bob Woodward news yesterday. My, my first reaction was like, tell me something I didn't know. Sure. I mean, it, it goes back to the fact that there's like an endless amount of scurrilous soap operatic stories that we're going to be getting probably for years to come about what has happened here. But it's all been out in the open and seeable, right, from day one. And, uh, you know, I do wonder, like, um, and this is a, for a different episode another time, but it would be, it's interesting, to, it would be interesting to get ourselves into the heads of the people who, for whom it does not matter. Mm. For whom, who's Got a Trump sign in the yard. They have the flag waving. They're watching Fox News. They've got their own media landscape. And I flip on Fox News to kind of find out. And everything that we're freaking out about is like the fourth thing in the lineup. <laughs> you know, so they, but, you know, through osmosis or if they're accidentally flipping by CNN, they're going to know that this stuff is out there, but they don't care. Right. And it was interesting to read Tom Friedman's column this week, who I'm not, he's not somebody I read uh, religiously, but he did point out something really interesting. They uh, hate the people who hate Trump and their hatred of those people trumps any hatred or anything they could feel about Trump, right? Trump is their bludgeon against the people they don't like. And so the more we dislike him, the happier they are. And that's the cult psychology. Right. And, uh, you know, whether these books get around that in any way, we don't know. But like, as, as we said at the top, uh, you know, it's not they're not adding voters. And so we'll see what the sum impact of all of this is electorally. This is Inside the Hive. Here's what I here's how I think that these do matter to those people, because I think so much of this is that. So many people who support the president, their agendas are being set by Fox News. That's just that's just the reality of the situation. And if if you don't talk about this on Fox News, most of the country's not on Twitter, right? right. Most of the country mm-hmm. is not reading the New York Times. They're not reading the Washington Post. They're getting their news from local news and they're watching Fox News. And so this is just not part of their conversation. And the political landscape is just framed in a completely different way you can't fault any of them they just this is how they are having their agenda set for them and this is why the the media matters but i totally agree with you that that most of these people are hardened by the fact that they feel like so so many people who don't support the president hate trump so much and then that that sort of translates to them what I think would be effective and how this book could be useful if I were making ads or if I were a strategist is I would say like Trump is that person. Trump hates the Trump voter. Trump disdains the Trump voter. Look at how he's talking about you to Bob Woodward behind your back. Trump is the person who you hate. He just happens to be at the top of the ticket. He's You are a pawn in all of this. And everything that you are rallying against it that that you're rubbing up against when it when you think about the person who hates the trump voter is trump himself that's how i would market it well and you know it reminds me 
of, uh, if you've never seen the movie, A Face in the Crowd, starring Andy Griffith, which I recommend people go look at because Andy Griffith plays a populist huckster in the mold, you know, is definitely sort of the foreshadowing of Trump. And at the end of the movie, he's doing his shtick on TV and they don't fade out in the recording booth and they hear him talking and saying, oh, these guys are my, the people that like me are, they're suckers, you know, they're stupid, you know, I can, they're like seals and I throw fish to them and they, they just go for it, you know, and it's sort of the big reveal that out there in radio land, they discover that this guy they've worshipped all along hates them, Mm. hates them. And I highly recommend people go look at that or just that scene on YouTube. It's an amazing, Mm. amazing scene. And it's so, when I watched it recently, I was like, wow, that, imagine if that happened, right? Could they be dissuaded if they heard how much he hated them, right? In his own voice. To some degree, we've heard intimations of that, you know? Um, Nowhere more clearly than him uh, pretending that he's protecting them from panic by not telling them that they could die from this disease. So, Well, you made a really good point yesterday on Twitter, but I'm going to let you make it now about that panic, that, that Trump has, has his excuse for, for the Woodward thing since the Woodward tape has come out is that he didn't want to sow panic. Do you want to say what you... What you tweeted out yesterday? Well, sure. I mean, the basic thing is, I mean, it's it's a completely laughable concept that he wouldn't want to create panic because panic, all caps panic, is his entire modus operandi. I mean, he, he creates panic every single day. He's trying to stimulate attention through fear. That's basically what Trump does. That is the Trump animal, is somebody who creates fear and drama and anxiety and panic in order to divide, right? And here he's, you know, we're supposed to believe that he didn't want to, you know, create panic. You know, it was just that he didn't want to create the kind of panic that would make him responsible for managing this country. He didn't want to be responsible for doing the right thing because it would hurt his electoral chances. I mean, it's so clear. You'd have to be blind, ignorant, you know, cult follower, not to just see it because it's on the wall, it's on tape, it's right there in front of you. And if you don't want to see what's in front of you, you know, you can't be helped. But the rest of us got to vote because this can't continue. You know, this can't continue. Well, I couldn't agree more with you. I think that panic has been the point. And to say now all of a sudden that that is not the point is really just... It is a revisionist history, the first degree. But right. you you made me think in hearing your recommendation that I want to know what else you are watching, listening to, doing to get when your mind When I'm not freaking out about the yeah, news. Yeah, I feel like it's really important. We've done this before, but I, I want to just end here by asking like what you're doing to keep yourself sane or what's making you feel joy at this point because... I think we all need to take a second. People ask me all the time, like, they ask me two things. They come to me asking me constantly about news stuff, and and I always am happy to give my opinion or my 
take or share some gossip that I have behind the scenes that I haven't yet reported. But I always say to them, like, just turn off the news for a second, especially if I can sense that someone is really worked up. Um, I always say, like, just take a breath. Take an hour. You don't need to watch 24 hours of cable news. You don't need to watch all of primetime or read all of the things on Twitter. Just take a breath. It's okay. It'll be there for you when you get back. But I feel... I can I can have a sense that people are getting agitated or, or worked up or upset, and I think it's important to have an off switch. I also think that pe- people ask me all the time, like, is your soul sucked? And I say, yes, it is. But I am <laughs> trying to, to do things to take my mind off of it. So I'm curious how you do it. Okay. Well, you know I'm a music fanatic. And uh, I've had one album on heavy rotation. What is it? Which the, is the Pretender's first record. Mm. It's from 1980. I have sort of revisited it recently and realized that it is just non-stop brilliant album from front to back. Mm. It has a couple of hits on it. Kid and um oh, what's the other one? I can't remember it now, but it's a beautiful album, but it's got sort of the uh the sleeper track on it is called Private Life. Ooh. Go listen to Private Life by The Pretenders. Such a beautiful song. And it's just her voice is so strong and experienced and non, uh, you know, you, it's not the usual kind of voice. It's just, and it's just the attitude and the cool of it. And it's such a, the, the cool of it is a reprieve from the hotness of our news cycle. I love Let's that. Let's put it that way. I love it. Um, yeah, that's great. And I'm also uh, just finished a book. Uh, I had watched the, one of the Dave Chappelle stand-up um, shows on Netflix, and he had a whole anecdote about this famous pimp named Iceberg Slim, mm. who wrote an autobiography in the late '60s called Pimp, which in the it was sort of a dime novel, but in the um, black community it was a massive, massive hit. It sold two million copies, and this former pimp became kind of a dime novelist whose books were sold in the black world and not as well known in the white world. But anyway, I read a biography of him called Street Poison um, by, uh, I'm going to remember his name in just a minute. Um, And it was so, what an incredible, during this time when we're talking about, um, you know, Black Lives Matter, or we just had this oral history of the George uh, Floyd protests, it's completely different vision of the history of black culture in America on the street level. And it really gets into how uh, sort of onerous zoning laws in all the cities of the Midwest were used to keep African-Americans living in very tight areas of cities, and all of them became red light districts. And kind of the tragedy, and Iceberg Slim, for those who don't know, was sort of like the reason Ice-T and Ice Cube named themselves after that. They were naming themselves after Iceberg Slim. He was sort of the godfather of hip-hop attitude. And it sort of takes you into a world in which the powerless have to find ways to empower themselves, sometimes in horrible ways. Mm. And and, and in this particular case, he eventually um, realizes, and this brings us back to Trump in a way, uh, he starts to read Freud and Jung in prison and starts to learn, why am I like this? Why do I treat women like mm. this? 
And he realizes his relationship to his mother was broken. Mm. And that when you have a broken relationship with your mother, and you can't just blame the mother. I mean, you know, but he had an absent, he was, you know, there was no father around. And his mother, he had betrayed him in a way that he never got over. And he eventually sees the world as just suckers and losers or you're winning. Mm. You're winning the game, right? And I, I, when I was reading it, I was like, oh. He's describing the psychology of Donald Trump. Donald Trump, like the biggest pimp, uh, you know, on earth presently, you know, this pimp psychology, a person, a broken person. Anyway, it's an amazing book, Street Poison. Check it out. That's what I got to say about it. I love it. I love it. This is what what better way to distract yourself than that. Yeah. And you? Oh, um, well, we watched, we're a little bit late to the party and I'm so sad we were. But we watched I May Destroy You. Have you watched it yet? No. Oh, I started to watch it. I oh, my God. Yes. Yo. So it's the most spectacular thing I've seen in a very long time, if not ever. It was very difficult to watch. But yes, it, she created a such a world and... It's beautiful. so exotic to me. It's it, you it, know I I, totally. I it was almost like I, I this is a world that exists on Earth. I mean, it really was uh, almost documentary in the way that yes. it takes you into a new world. It it really guts you and it captivates you and it makes you sad and scared and hopeful. And we were so obsessed with it. We watched there are twelve episodes. They're like twenty something minutes long. We watched eight episodes in a row. We stayed up until two o'clock in the morning on a weeknight because we couldn't stop. Wow. And yeah. I couldn't recommend anything higher than watching this. I will scream it from the rooftop. It's very difficult to get through, but it's worth it. Um, on a lighter note, do you know the Beach Boys album Wild Honey? Oh, do I? So we, it's been on the heaviest rotation. I've been listening to it almost every day when I'm running. Listen to it all the time at the house, in the car. You know, it's so interesting. I'm a huge Beach Boys girl. I love the Beach Boys since I was a well, kid. Love them. The I'm al- high-fiving you. I'm high-fiving you right now. The yes. album sound it's such a different sound for them. It really sounds like if the Beach Boys turned into like a mix of Chicago and Elvis Costello. Yes. And it's such a good, fun sound. It really is such a mood elevator. I highly recommend it. That's right. Yeah. I believe that is the album just for the music uh, nerds in the world, uh, of which both of us appear to be, um, that uh, Carl Wilson of the Wilson mm-hmm. Brothers, you know, Brian is always the is the usual genius in the Beach Boys, it's, but it's a very Carl Wilson imprinted album. And uh, it's a beautiful record. Yeah. Good choice. That's where we'll leave you today. On, on right? Leave, an, leave them on the pleasure. I agree. On the pleasure. We'll be back with the doom and gloom next week. Don't you fear. Oh, I mean, it's going to be heavily supplied, I'm sure. (laughs) In the meantime, listen to those things, watch those things, read those things, and listen to the Woodward tapes. Let's keep listening and see what else we hear. Emily Jane Fox. What a pleasure. Good talking. Take care. Thank you to my co-host, Joe Hagan. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a good review while you're there. 
Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their wonderful production work. And thanks, of course, to our sponsors. Please support them any way you'd support this podcast. We will see you right back here next week. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now. From PRX.